Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I'm here with Alpha Lee. Alpha is a group leader in the Department of Physics at the University of Cambridge, as well as co-founder of the startup PostEra. Alpha, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's great to get a chance to meet and speak with you, and I'm looking forward to learning uh, a bit about what you're up to, uh, both from a research perspective as well as with your startup. Why don't we get started by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work at this intersection of chemistry and materials and machine learning? Sure. So I started out as a uh, chemist. And by undergraduate training, I was always fascinated about making molecules and uh-huh. how can you make very complicated natural products from simple starting materials. So I started off my academic training trying to become a chemist uh, as, a, as an undergrad. And then I soon realized that being in the lab is interesting and fun, but I also wanted to sort of take a step back and understand like why and how sort of chemical reactions work mm-hmm. and understand from a more theoretical perspective. And that's why I did my PhD in mathematics um, at Oxford, where I looked into the physics of particles in in solution. And then during my postdoc at Harvard, I thought, well, the mathematical theories and physical theories are very, very powerful, but there seems to be a gap between these theories and actual materials and chemistry. And, and that's the that's where the data part comes in. Um, can we sort of leverage uh, experimental data that has been done before to, in, to build better models, but obviously adding the physics in as well. A, a nice part, a nice bit is that actually the physics of particles and the physics of data are actually very much related. Yeah, the broad family of physics called statistical physics. And that's how I got into some machine learning through this physics chemistry angle. So, so since two and a half years ago, I returned back to the UK and started my own research group uh, in Cambridge, where we now work at the intersection between uh, chemistry, so drug discovery, uh, physics of materials and machine learning. Um, and so six months ago, uh, I co-founded Postera, uh, which offers of medicinal chemistry as a service powered by machine learning, which really takes the uh, machine learning approaches that we developed uh, one step further and deploy it in the wild, so to speak, uh, in drug discovery projects. Awesome. Awesome. You mentioned the, the physics of data. What does that mean to you? Is that you know just statistics or is there something more to it than that? I think it's both about how do we understand noise in the data set. So for example, some of my research pertains to estimating uncertainty in uh, model predictions, mm-hmm. both in terms of m- how do we estimate measurement noise and how do we measure noise or uncertainty due to not having enough data in a certain area of chemical or material space? And that motivates a line of research on uh, Bayesian deep learning or Bayesian approaches to machine learning in general. Mm-hmm. And and that's actually quite important in if we link it back to real life experiments uh, because experiments are often extremely expensive and you really want to be able to probe regions of chemical or material space, which are the most fruitful and that you really gain the most information from doing the least number of experiments. So the physics of machine learning and the physical process of doing experiments have become pretty uh, joined up together when you think about the whole process. Several of the conversations I've had with folks working in in areas like this rely heavily on simulation for their work. Do you as well? 
we take simulations, obviously, as one sort of data. And then they're often extremely powerful uh, and, and sit in, in the middle of, so pure ML and pure experiments, which usually experiments are usually uh, slightly slower and often more costly. And, but I think we are now trying to sort of put the physics behind those simulations into the construction machine learning models or conversely interpret the architecture of the simulations as a machine learning model by itself. So for example, a lot of physics-based simulations often contains um, parameters, often contains mm -hmm. equations that are empirically parameterized. And a strand of my research is indeed trying to interpret these very powerful simulation engines as machine learning models themselves. And then you can think about, well, can I judiciously tune and, and decide these parameters based on data? Because I, I think that physics has so much to offer in terms of the frameworks, modeling frameworks, and data has so much to offer in terms of fine tuning the gap between predictions and ob observables. Can you elaborate on that a bit more? What does that mean to turn a physics simulation into a machine learning model? Right. So for example, we uh, recently tried to use machine learning to predict um, the structure of complex liquids. Mm -hmm. um, so if you have a bunch of particles moving around in, in, in the liquid state, the, a question in physics is, well, what are the structure? What will be the structure of these particles? Uh, what will be the structure of the liquid? That's one of these sort of very basic questions in uh, soft condensed matter or condensed matter physics. And a branch of physics known as liquid state theory parameterized a sort of discussed a very elegant way to solve this question. But there's one equation called the constitutive equation or the closure relation that is uh, unknown. And although the physical th framework is there, that equation is what sort of hinders a lot of progress. And, and we say, hey, like, why not just take the framework and parameterize that equation using data? Just do a lot of simulation data and parameterize that equation using ML. And that's a lot better than throwing away the whole physical framework, just use ML to learn everything from scratch because yeah. there's so much progress there. Uh, so that's one example where we can take a classical theory, look at the weakest link, which is usually an empirical equation, and say, mm -hmm. okay, let's tackle the empirical equation using ML, but mm -hmm. leaving the classical theory intact. Awesome. And, and so ultimately you're trying to apply this to medicinal applications, drug discovery, Yes. but also I guess I'm curious about the relationship between drug discovery and materials and material science. I often think of, you know, drugs more from the, the, the perspective of their chemical properties and materials, you know, in terms of, you know, wanting to create new kind of macro materials. Um, not sure what the question is there, but I, I'm trying to, to get at are, are the techniques the same across uh, drug and materials uh, discovery or uh, are they very different? I think the questions that we are trying to ask obviously are somewhat different uh, mm -hmm. because as, as you alluded to for materials you're usually interested in self-bulk properties for drugs you're interested in properties at the molecular scale mm -hmm. but i think in terms of the models that we construct and in particular the, the philosophy that we take in constructed models um that's very similar so for example uh, we use a lot of graph uh, neural networks for chemistry because we can look at a chemical compound or chemical molecule as a graph, and you can perform operations on the graph. And we have extended this to think about Bayesian graph neural networks because uncertainty is extremely important um, for drug discovery. 
But conversely, you can also think about a formula of an inorganic uh, material, uh, let's say a battery cathode material as a graph as well. So you can think of a formula of a material as a graph and we recently showed that we can basically featureize, uh, let's say a cathode material of battery as a graph and then using this, 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 this material graph to predict materials property and also estimate uncertainty and drive experiments. So in terms of the methodology, I think there's a lot of uh, synergies and similarity. I think in terms of thinking about the whole design cycle um, in chemistry and drug discovery, think about the design make test cycle. So how to design yep. compounds, how to synthesize compounds in the lab, which usually is the rate determining step actually, and how to design experiments to test compounds. Mm -hmm. And if you think about that framework, then we can see a lot of parallels between what is done in chemistry and what is done in material science. Obviously, I think the key difference in material science is that experiments are actually even costlier than chemistry. So in, in drug discovery, a lot of these uh, measurements uh, can be done relatively. There are, there are protocols to biochemical assays that can do these experiments to test whether a compound is actually potent against a protein relatively quickly. For materials trying to make a uh, new superconducting material and test it can be sort of a PhD project in of itself. Yeah. So I think the throughput is very different, which means that okay. there's a lot more interesting ML, specifically in the low data limit that we can think about in material science. You, you've mentioned a few times estimating uncertainty as being one of the goals or at least a, a useful property to have in this type of work. Uh, what are the types of uncertainties that you're um, trying to estimate and how do they play out in the chemical and material realms? Right. So the, I think the two types of uncertainty is first, so uncertainty due to having insufficient data in a particular chemical space or material space. And that's usually known as the epistemic of uncertainty. Um, the second type of uncertainty is the uncertainty due to the, due to the measurements themselves, uh, because a measurement inherently is not noise-free. And usually the noise can be an inhomogeneous function of where you are in chemical space. And that is usually overlooked in a lot of approaches. Um, but if you actually do an experiment, you know that some molecules are, some materials are inherently more sort of difficult to deal with than others. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's called, so called aleatoric uncertainty. And we capture both within the framework of probabilistic Bayesian deep learning and actually capturing the variation of uncertainty as a function of where you are in chemical space due to measurement, I think is, is something that's super important because in a lot of material discovery, you typically want to discover material that is robust rather than a material that uh, will sometimes give you good result, but other times less so. For, for these different types of problems, how are you formulating your problem? What are you modeling? What are you trying to predict ultimately that you want to incorporate these different measures of uncertainty into? So we're typically trying to predict so figures, figures of merit. For example, in drug discovery, that would be a balance between uh, how strongly would a molecule bind towards a, to a protein and also how strongly would the molecule bind to other proteins, which you would want to avoid because that causes toxicity effects and as well as other properties like solubility or others or properties that are required to make the molecule drug. In for materials, it would be the, the property trying to optimize, for example, um, sort of the band gap of materials to try to think about uh, photovoltaics or the strength of material, think about functional materials like alloys. But nice thing about our framework is that um, by thinking about materials and molecules in a more abstract way, we're able to create frameworks 
that are generalizable across chemical material space. In the case of materials, the characteristics that you've mentioned, strength, for example, is often the target. You're looking to, to build stronger materials. Right. In the case of drug discovery, it sounded like the things that you're trying to predict aren't so much. You know, I think the the primary focus is efficacy against you know something. Is that a prior or something that you know a priori and you have a laundry list of things that you want to test for these you know secondary characteristics or is efficacy also a part of what you're trying to use machine learning to identify? That's a great question, actually. So in drug discovery, typically, um, we think about in terms of so three stages, the, the biology, the chemistry, and the medicine. I, mm -hmm. I would think about it that way. Mm -hmm. So the biology part is indeed about asking what is the question. So if you want to cure a disease, which proteins you should target. Yeah. And then the chemistry part is conditioned on these proteins from the target give me the best molecule that can okay. hit those proteins from the others. And the medicine part is so carrying forward the molecule to How do we clinical trials and impact patients. Um, so right now, um, we are not really working that much on the biology part. I think it's a okay. fascinating question. It's a very difficult question. We're not really doing that much there yet. I think a lot of uh, very talented folks are dedicating a lot of effort in the more biological part. Mm -hmm. so my work mostly pertains to the chemistry part. So we've talked a lot about the, the chemistry part thus far. You also uh, focus in your research on more uh, kind of theoretical questions around machine learning and algorithms. And tell us a little bit more about that uh, aspect of your research. Right. So I think in the process of trying to come up with algorithms or chemistry materials, we realized there are some interesting questions that are so general across the different algorithms that we are dealing with. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the question of, well, we all use gradient optimizers to optimize algorithms, but from a optimist parameters rather, but, but from a physics perspective, do we know why these algorithms work? Like why, why do they not get stuck in bad solutions, high energy solutions or high loss function solutions? Do we know how the loss function landscape looks like i mean those are questions that obviously um has been considered by a lot of uh, machine learning pioneers um, right. in, in the past and, and so we we build on those works and so use techniques in statistical physics and uh pure mathematics to sort of analyze and sort of toy models of these neural networks and trying to get to the heart of why certain optimizers work uh, and we in fact show that there's a very nice synergy and mapping between machine learning and a, a statistical physics problem of so-called free energy optimization that allows us to explain why these optimizers work. And we also then move on to think about what's the landscape of the loss function in machine learning algorithms and um, sort of derive a set of very interesting analytical results showing why deep networks are easier to optimize than shallow networks. And obviously the end goal of these research is to try to think about whether there are better inference algorithms um, that we can obtain by taking a more principled view to why and how algorithms work. Okay. Is there a short answer to why deep networks are easier to optimize than shallow networks? So what we find is that deep networks, minima in deep networks are actually closer together than uh, shallow networks, that deep networks actually, so good solutions are easier to find than mm. bad solutions. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's something in a nutshell, so the summary of, the, the analytical results. So if you just minimize it, it's just easier to find good solutions than bad ones. 
in our conversation thus far and in some of your work, you um, you mentioned energy, uh, energy landscape and free energy and things like that. Can you elaborate on how you use that concept and um, how it comes into play? Right. So energy landscape in so physics and chemistry uh, relates to the concept of how the potential energy of a system changes as you change the system. Um, so for example, if I have two atoms connected by a spring, yeah. as I pull the atoms apart, the energy increases because atoms really want to be together. If I squash the atoms too much, the energy also increases because atoms want to be sort of not overlapping each other. Therefore, you get a get a chemical bond. And you think of this, um, generalizing this concept to many, many degrees of freedom, so many, many atoms, and you have a whole landscape. Depending on the coordinates of each atom, you get a different energy. Okay. If you think of each atom as a parameter in the machine learning model, then, aha, this, and you think of the, the energy as the loss function, then you can basically map a lot of what we have, um, people have thought about in physics and chemistry into ideas in machine learning. So for example, glasses in uh, physics uh, correspond to a very certain interesting what type in of physics? energy. Sorry? Sorry, what in physics? Uh, glasses, the idea of glass, of a okay. glass system. So if you think about um, a sort of a, a, a glass, yeah. then that system is disordered. It doesn't really have an order or, or crystalline structure in it. It flows extremely slowly. Uh, in fact, if a glass is technically not a solid because it, it right. flows extremely, extremely slowly. And the energy landscape of glasses actually share some similarity with the energy landscape or the loss function landscape machine learning models um, in the sense that it's highly disordered. The parameters are definitely not regular at all. Like you see very bumpy energy landscapes. So that's one extreme. The other, the, another interesting example to think about is proteins, for example. The energy landscape of proteins are very fun, so-called funnel-like because the protein needs to reach a state uh, very quickly, else it won't fold. And if we can engineer a machine learning landscape that is funnel-like rather than glass-like, then that's great because that means the machine learning model quickly finds uh, the best parameters with minimal effort. So you can think about like these physical objects and these analogies of particular models to think about how we can optimize the models. So you 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 draw this parallel between physics and the kind of loss function optimization space of models. I guess I'm curious, what are some concrete results that you have, you know, either, you know, from physics to machine learning or the other way around? You mentioned a few things. Are those, you know, how concrete are those as opposed to ideas if we could think about the machine learning, the protein example that you use? Like, have you actually implement that, implemented that and use that to find concrete uh, deep learning architectures that converge faster because they use some properties of a physical uh, a protein? That's, that's, that's a great question. So um, we, have, we, have, we are still working towards that. That, that would okay. be the dream of this direction of research, at least from my perspective, is to find some map, maps between the two and actually accelerate ML. Yeah. Right now we have characterized ML algorithms uh, both numerically and analytically, and and created, I guess, an idea of how the, how ML algorithms can be mapped to physical objects um, mm -hmm. or, or physical heuristics, right? Yeah. And and an active area of research is indeed trying to go one step further and think about how to create some more optimizable ML algorithms. Do you envision that there are things that we can learn about physics? 
by observing machine learning or is physics so so much further ahead that you know there's probably nothing interesting there oh i think physics has a lot to gain from machine learning i think a lot of physical theories are derived based on looking at data and say and, and the physicist saying oh like because i can only keep track of well two degrees of freedom mm -hmm. if i'm plotting in 2D, <laughs> therefore, I want to get a line and I only focus on two things. And that biases you towards sort of neglecting a lot of the data, which could actually be interesting and useful. So, on this theme, for example, we published a recent paper on a battery degradation, where a lot of uh, practitioners in the field has sort of looked at spectroscopic. The idea is to predict how the lifetime of battery given non-invasive spectroscopic uh, measurements. If you can do that, then you mm -hmm. can tell so how whether the battery is still alive or not, or, or how many cycles does it have left before it would die. And that's very useful for stuff like electric vehicles or person consumer electronics. But the, but the upshot is that a lot of folks look, look at sort of very clear observable features of the spectrum. Uh -huh. Whereas if you just train the machine learning model on the spectrum to use it to predict degradation, the machine learning model actually identifies very subtle features. So very high high order correlations of features that you will never even expect to be important. And then you can go back and go to the physics and ask, well, what does this feature correspond to? Um, and in fact, we are now thinking about are there new explanations of battery degradation based on just assigning, oh, this feature is actually important for degradation. That's not something you can just do by looking at the data or conventional physical theories. Huh. Interesting. Do you think it's possible that, um, you know, some of the kind of well-known analytical kind of closed analytical results that we take for granted in physics um, that are kind of low order polynomial actually have a lot of these subtle, you know, additional features that will come to discover based on this line of thinking or, uh, or am I oversimplifying? I'm thinking like, maybe it's not, you know, equals MC squared, but there's all these other, you know, there are all these other kind of higher order features that, you know, because of our bias to clean polynomial solutions, we've, you know, ended up, you know, holding these relationships up that aren't as, you know, nuanced enough. Yeah. I, I, I think I've, I've got a distinction between um, sort of, fundamental physics frameworks yeah. and how physics is being implemented and executed. Mm -hmm. so I think if you think about fundamental physics frameworks like special relativity, general relativity, quantum mechanics, gravity, I think. And that was just an uh, example of a low order polynomial relationship. I wasn't necessarily talking about relativity. Yeah. So, so I, 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 I'm not expecting those areas. And I, I, I would think that the frameworks, they are relatively robust. Um, but I think the implementation of these frameworks into materials discovery or whatnot, usually requires a lot of simplification, like quantum mechanics, for example, um, mm -hmm. can resolve quantum mechanics and um, numerically even like with supercomputers, like exactly numerically. So you make a lot of simplifications on the way, the same with okay. other areas of physics. And the quality of these approximations can be massively improved with machine learning. Got it. So it's not that your, you know, fundamental laws of thermodynamics yeah. aren't robust. They probably are. They are pretty uh, good. <laughs> but when in the real world, there are a lot of, there are a lot of other factors that aren't captured by kind of idealized models that we tend to overlook. And machine learning, you know, the, what we learn from machine learning might give us a path to incorporating those as features. Yeah, and I think also 
it's important to know that a lot of these physical frameworks are so very easy to express mathematically. Yeah. But actually, um, solving it for real world for for real molecule or real world problem is actually exponentially complex. Like quantum mechanics, for example, is very it's very straightforward to write down an ordinary or partial differential equation, but then to solve it for an n, n electron problem is really non-trivial. And so then that that's why people start making a lot of these very good approximations, mm-hmm. but still these approximations could be improved when you sort of take a, take a step back and say that, well, why not just use existing measurements as a way to fine tune the approximations? Do you, in your work, look at the uh, activity that's happening around neural ODE research? And does that- yeah, so I've, I've heard of, I've certainly read um, briefly the paper and I think it's a very interesting approach. Um, mm-hmm. So how to integrate physics, so frameworks like ODEs um, into machine learning. I think so much more could be done to physics if we start thinking about sort of semi-empirical, empirical physical frameworks as machine learning. And I think a lot of people in automatic differentiation field, for example, think about differentiating through uh, machine learning models. We I've not done research in er- this area per se, but I am aware of a lot of amazing work coming out of this community of thinking mm-hmm. about maybe tree simulations uh, as machine learning and do automatic differentiation through simulations, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. You are currently in Santa Clara in California, a long way from either of the Cambridges. Right. Uh, and what brought you there is the startup that you founded, Postera, and an opportunity that you had to go through the Y Combinator accelerator. Can you talk a little bit about Postera and uh, what it's specifically looking to do? Yep. So Postera is a company that tries to that offers some medicinal chemistry. Um, as a surface powered by machine learning. Mm-hmm. Um, and we realized um, that although a lot of excitement has gone into sort of AI, ML for drug discovery, mm-hmm. um, if we take a step back, we realized there are two sort of key pain points amongst the, the, the whole life cycle. Mm-hmm. So the first pain point is um, sort of how do we make molecules? Um, so the chemical synthesis of molecules, and that usually is the rate determining step when you try to make thousands of molecules. Mm-hmm. Um, designing a molecules has been has, has been the focus for a lot of academic and industrial groups, but how to make molecules relatively less so. And so we developed some state-of-the-art algorithm. Part of it is actually published a molecular transformer or reaction prediction and retrosynthesis, which sort of is now the state-of-the-art for reaction prediction, predicting how to make how molecules react and the inverse problem how to make molecules. And we and we know that this and we think that this can really accelerate medicinal chemistry. And the second pillar that we focus on is uncertainty. Uh, how do we use uncertainty to sort of design experiments mm-hmm. such that we explore the most fruitful chemical space? And we, I think we are the, the first to really think of how to integrate the whole designmic test cycle together in one machine learning platform and offering it to accelerate um, drug discovery in both pharma and biotechs. Okay, you mentioned molecular transformer. Is that related to the concept of transformers that we see in like natural language processing? Yep, um, it is inspired by that. Where we take we basically treat reaction prediction as a machine translation problem. Okay, where reactant reagents, so what goes into the flask, is treated as a language. What mm-hmm. comes out of the flask, the product is treated in another language. Mm-hmm. And you think about how, and you think about whether you can use translation to. As a, as, a, as, a, as a heuristic concept to think about processing these inputs and outputs. And what we have shown is that actually this perhaps very simple, simple but 
direct way of thinking about chemical reaction actually outperforms a lot of the more sort of heuristical way of uh, sort of handcrafting reaction rules or handcrafting chemistry templates from textbook. This very simple approach based on translation achieves over 90% accuracy in predicting correctly what comes out of the flask given what goes into the flask. Mm-hmm. And that accuracy outperforms even trained human chemists. And so how do you go about training a model like that? Are you doing similar types of techniques where you're doing close kinds of, uh, you know, you're a lot tra- training the model to predict uh, things that are left out of your training data or uh, right. is this something different? So we have over 9 million reactions uh, reported in patents, which we have cleaned, aggressively cleaned and augmented mm-hmm. uh, using sort of chemistry um, knowledge. And we train the model on those data. And obviously we, we validate the model using sort of standard training test splits. Okay. So you've got the existing relationships that you're training on. Right. Okay. Right. We, we use data that's been published and, and, and we use patent data, which, uh, which is a data source of robust um, chemical reactions. And that means a lot of these chemical transformations can be readily translated um, into an industrial context. What's the granularity of the, or the format of the input data? Is it kind of the chemical equations that we're used to seeing from basic you know, chemistry class and some representation, or are you providing lower level physical information about the, uh, the various molecules or atoms? Yeah, so the data format is the molecular structure of okay. the reactants, the molecular structure of the reagents. These reactants plus reagents are what goes into the flask. Mm-hmm. And then the product is what you isolate from this reaction. Again, the molecular structure is given. And then transformer basically takes these two as inputs and outputs and performs machine translation to predict the output given the input. And that reaction prediction step or reactions in general is actually, I think, a very important part in the whole chemistry stage in drug discovery. For example, we're actually leading a COVID project, a live COVID project, trying to develop uh, new antivirals against COVID. It's open source and uh, com- a non-profit initiative that we're having to lead with a lot of academic groups. And so we launched a crowdsourcing platform, sourcing compounds um, based on a fragment merge. Um, so a high throughput screen that our folks, our collaborators at Oxford ran. We got like four, a few thousand structures. If you were to just look at it one by one and decide which ones can be made easily, it would take you weeks. Whereas an algorithm like Molecular Transformer would take a weekend to triage like which compounds are easily makeable from purchasable starting material. And it's that kind of speed, which allows rapid iterations and allows you to sort of make more molecules, test more molecules, and so ultimately discover drugs faster. Okay. And have any interesting candidates come out of that process yet uh, for COVID? Yeah, we have got several uh, pretty promising hits uh, against the target, which we are now rapidly developing. Oh, that's awesome. Um, so you started Y Combinator in January. Are you close to your demo day? Was so it we, January? We just did our demo day. Uh, oh, you just did a it? A month ago, yep. Oh, how did it go? It went really well. Uh, we were able to close our seed round uh, within a week. Okay. Uh, this is really interesting stuff, and I appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Are there? Do you have any parting words or thoughts or resources that folks can follow up on if they're interested in learning more about this area? Yeah, I'm happy to uh, chat with any folks interested in, in, in our work and sort of our 
COVID platform, just a plug on that is covid.postera.ai. The whole project is a nonprofit and uh, completely open. Uh, so if folks are interested in uh, chipping in ideas or commenting on the ML uh, or, or the chemistry, uh, feel free to do so. We have a forum, a live forum, where a lot of the chemists discuss ideas. Mm-hmm. Uh, welcome people so chiming in. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Alpha, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.